Hello and welcome to the Honest Politics Podcast. My name is Alex Gamsik and I am the founder of Honest Politics LLC. My company does high-level political consulting, but not for politicians. My services are for everyday Americans just like you and me. So let's get started because today we're going to look over some academic articles. And we're not doing a deep dive into any one article, but I'm looking at three or four. And we're going to see what these uh, academics have to say about different topics, including recessions, weed legalizations, and more. So stay tuned. We'll be right there. The first article we're going to look at are researchers looking into Japan, their government spending, and how suicide rates fluctuate during recessions. Now, obviously, this is a sad topic. During recessions, there is an increase in uh, anxieties and resulting depressions, suicides. So they, researchers here wanted to examine how health and mental health are affected during recessions. Let's cut to the chase. About 1% increase in government spending leads to about 17 suicide preventions in Japan per year. Previous studies showed mixed correlations between health and economic conditions, but it's clear that recessions result in worse mental health and suicide rates. So the actual physical health of people is, the authors say, a little more up in the air, but mental health definitely takes a nosedive during recessions. And they said part of this might be due to austerity measures, and they defined austerity here as cutbacks to government spending. They linked this to neoliberal reforms in the late 90s through 2006 under Prime Minister Koizumi, who was the Prime Minister of Japan. But after that, they noticed that the government spent more money in responses to recessions and to the earthquake slash tsunami disaster that caused so much harm in Japan during 2011. They did this study by looking at spending and suicide rates over the course of 14 years, which in some ways it's good because you're looking at multiple economic downturns and upturns, so it eliminates some time factors. Um, and then they did control for other factors later on. If you look at the graph that showed the change in suicide rates and spending, you see that after spending is increased, that's when suicide rates drop. So it, to me, it added weight to their hypothesis or their null hypothesis or whatever it was in this case. See, I kind of skipped the methodology part because I knew this was peer-reviewed and I'm trusting that other PhDs understand the t statistics, the regressions, and the science a little better than I do. <laughs> so getting back to some of the other findings in this article, they acknowledge that in Japan, the local governments get about 30% of their revenue from the national government which meant that national government policies of either increasing spending or decreasing spending really do make a difference throughout the whole country. If we look more closely at the suicide rates, it mostly went up with males between 40 to 64 years old, and it also increased in females 40 to 64 years old, but other groupings didn't really have a signif statistically significant effect. Now, when I, we say statistically significant, that's different from your perception of significance. Like if it does increase the suicide rate by one death, that's very significant to the person and that person's family and friends. But statistics is different. So you have to kind of balance the ethical considerations of statistical significance. But uh, that's what these academic researchers are looking into. 
if you control for other factors like unemployment rate and per capita income, uh, year specific factors, they they did all of this controlling basically, you know. And then they went into some limitations of the study. They didn't say that there was a causation. They didn't. They never proved causation, which means that this decrease in suicides happened when governments increased spending, but they can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt or beyond, well, that's an American court uh, term. I've been listening to a really cool Supreme Court podcast, by the way, um, Citizen's Guide to the Supreme Court. I recommend you guys subscribe because those two dudes are pretty fun to listen to and you learn a thing or two about the Supreme Court and what's going on. But back to my podcast, uh, these researchers also stated that they did not consider suicide prevention programs like the one that the national government established in the mid-2000s. But they didn't think that this program made as big a difference um, as it could have. That first study was my favorite to look at because it can be applied to today. When we're in a pandemic, we're in a huge recession here in America, and there's a debate on how much money to spend on it. Now, the government's already spent a ton of money. They've spent, what was it, $4 trillion in the stimulus program? But... If you look at this, you can see that more government spending during recessions does at least prevent suicides. At least that's what this study says happened in Japan. Um, whether you can extrapolate that to the U.S. in 2020 in our current situation, there's so many factors that are different, but I think this study is good to look at and consider when you're thinking about how the United States should um, alter their fiscal policy at this moment. So the next one I read was about free speech on college campuses, how free speech is a paradox on college campuses. So the, the, this academic was from uh, Canada. He slash she was reviewing a basically like a demand by the Canadian government to make universities have free speech uh, by instituting this Chicago statement, whatever it like some person in Chicago made this statement basically saying that you have to tolerate most kinds of free speech. The paradox here was that if you're mandating places to provide free speech, you are limiting their speech to govern their own speech however they want. It was a little bit of a tricky argument, but I think the academic's motive was implied when they said Sometimes these free speech regulations are a way for conservatives to get away with, with saying things that academics usually wouldn't stand for. I'm not sure if the person in the article was basically just trying to pass a liberal agenda, saying that you're not allowed to say certain things about certain protected classes of people or things about climate change not being real and that kind of stuff. So it's an interesting thought experiment, though, to say, you know, is it okay for anyone to just say anything they want on a college campus? Um, and should governments be forcing colleges to have basically statements written by some third party as their free speech code? Um, and it limits university freedom, even though it's mandating that universities expand freedom. You know, where I come on the side of this, I mean, I'm hosting a Honest Politics podcast. I'm not going to tell you one way to think or another. But I do think it would be interesting to think about, should this statement impact the way students express themselves in classrooms? Should it limit the way administrative and leadership in the college address 
and talk about things? Should it change the way professors and teachers talk about things? And is there a way to be a little more nuanced? Is there a way to perhaps adopt some of the Chicago statement, but not all of it? So I think there's a lot of different things to think about when you're considering uh, free speech and what is allowed or not allowed to be said on a college campus, including whether what's being said is factually questionable or not. I also read a short article in Scientific American talking about anti-science, where um, people may be less inclined to believe in climate change or to get vaccinations because of basically a media campaign by certain groups or organizations that have published doubt into vaccination efforts by, for example, trying to amplify voices of people who have been negatively impact impacted by vaccines, which it's certainly possible, and then trying to debase the entire basis of vaccinations based off of one or two stories that just get amplified, where you have other places saying climate change doesn't exist, and then maybe saying, oh, maybe it exists, but we don't know where it comes from. And maybe getting one or two, you know, quote, scientists or people who have more nuanced or um, contradictory opinions coming on and being a thought leader for an anti-science position. Part of that argument against science is this somehow by funding scientists, scientists are making money by taking a position and then manipulating their data to reach that outcome. And I'm not saying that's not a problem because data is powerful in the way that advanced statistics are difficult for most people to understand, including myself. So I'm not trying to look down on anyone. Like advanced stats are difficult to understand, especially running regressions chi-square tests and all this random mumbo-jumbo logits and probits on data sets. And you could basically manipulate data in so many different ways until, you know, keep running the regression in Stata until you find the outcome you're looking for. And it's up to other academics to peer review that study and before it gets published. And then it's up to media outlets, which are horrible at interpreting studies. That's just kind of a fact. I mean, every time I see a study in the news and then I look at it, they don't tell the whole story or they don't tell it well. There was one where it said vegetarian diets will lead to an increase in, uh, I think it was heart attacks. I click on the study and the study itself says it lowers the, it, it does in fact increase the risk of heart attacks, but it lowers the risk of stroke. But that was not mentioned in the CNN story or the Fox News story. So you gotta think twice about this kind of stuff, and science is more complicated, so the position my business takes, because I have published a position on this, is that any data is better than no data. It's better to have some data, even if it can be manipulated, to have some basis behind what you're arguing, but it also requires a robust system of academics to review it, who understand the stats, and media outlets that actually honestly put stuff out rather than trying to get emotional headlines that people will click on, which is kind of difficult because it's a profit-based um, system that media outlets run. But then if you have a non-profit-based system and you have the state running their own media, then the government is putting out whatever kind of content they want. So 
basically this article talked about anti-science being pushed and how it makes things like combating climate change and honestly it's going to be very difficult to convince people to get the covid vaccine because there is going to be a huge anti-science push because these youtubers and fox news people or other conservative outlets want to make money by you clicking on articles so they'll talk about how oh the, the vaccine actually killed this one person or whatever kind of ignoring the thousands of people that it might save but uh yeah i'll end this tangent and we'll go on to the next article this next article is interesting because rather than just one or a team of scholars having a hypothesis and testing it these were two scholars who understand thailand's universal healthcare system and tried to debate over how it came to be with the um the overall objective being how did thailand create this so how can it happen in other countries thailand's universal healthcare system is considered one of the best in the world by many scholars and these two scholars debating how it happened one says that it was from electoral reforms and the other one says it happened because of a professional movement of rural doctors you know one was saying that having it tested first in six counties made a difference creating a lock-in effect and uh, everyone wanted the healthcare system cuz the people saw how great it was in the six counties and they wanted it nationwide um a little bit about thailand it became a democracy well not really a democracy i looked on freedom house which is a fantastic organization um that ranks democracies and thailand's not really a free country but uh These authors said it kind of became a democracy. It probably got better than it was. Democracy doesn't just empower everybody, the people. It more so empowers well-positioned movements of elites from esteemed professions. So, basically, more of a middle, upper middle class would mobilize in a democracy rather than the poorest of the poor. And I think you see this in a lot of democracies nowadays, where there's still poverty. So there's still a class. that doesn't vote that doesn't have what everyone else has in the democracy so you and you know a lot of democracies that have occurred have occurred because of middle class revolutions rather from from the very bottom up to the very top take with that what you will but that's what one author was saying and then another author agreed that these professionals played an important role but thought electoral reform was the more important thing becoming more of a democracy made this universal healthcare system better. And so they kind of go back and forth. One was saying, "Oh, I'm a political scientist." The other was saying, "Oh, I'm a sociologist." So they came to focus on different aspects of the policy process or different actors within the policy process. And I skipped some of the conclusions cuz they were getting so nuanced into parts of Thailand politics that I did not understand. but it was interesting to see they they called this a qualitative analysis which the quick and dirty way to quant say qualitative versus quantitative is quant you think numbers number analysis versus qualitative the quality so it's hearing people talk and getting a general feel and using stories so they did qualitative analysis which involved a lot of interviews with people in Thailand a lot of their field notes they kept referring to their own field notes with people they've talked to who are either experts or who were actually at the place and during this back and forth they had during the article they actually conceded on a few points to each other or acknowledged that some of what they were saying 
uh, could have been different. In the 1970s, there was another article like this with Southeast Asian scholars doing a debate paper, and one of them actually came away from it with a changed position. Here, the changes in their positions were not so drastic, but they did both moderate and appreciate each other's views. Whether you think it's because of like a middle class movement, which both of them kind of agreed kind of happened, um, or if it was a lock-in effect from having test runs in different counties or provinces or whatever, um, try the universal healthcare system first, create a lock-in effect, and then more people wanted it. Or if you think it's because of the democratization of the country, it's another interesting thing to look at, and if you're interested in implementing universal healthcare in other countries, I think Thailand is a great test subject, and you can go read more about it or hire Honest Politics to do that for you. The last article we're going to look at, I think, is actually the most interesting. It talks about marijuana legalization and traffic fatalities. So this study was conducted in 2020, it's very recent, by three different uh, academics. Let's just get to the chase real quick. This article found that legalizing recreational marijuana did not show evidence of increased traffic fatalities compared to other states where it was not legalized recreationally. The authors were careful to note that it is possible that recreational legalization does increase traffic accidents, but they didn't find evidence for it when they ran this study. So now that I've told you the conclusion, you can either shut off the podcast or you can listen more about the details and how this actually happened and how they came to this conclusion. Um, and it is a little difficult and nuanced because it's not like they disproved this. They just are contributing evidence to a theory. So to start, weed... <laughs> I'll use weed and marijuana interchangeably. I don't think anyone cares. Um, so marijuana is, or will soon be available, for recreational use to a quarter of the U.S. population. Um, and several other countries have already legalized it. Many initial studies showed an increase in uh, THC, which is the substance in marijuana, and traffic collisions in states like Colorado, Washington, and Oregon. So other studies showed that they correlate. There's more traffic accidents when there's more marijuana. But this study that these authors did used advanced weighting and control techniques to show that there is not a sizable effect of legalizing weed on traffic fatalities. Marijuana was legal in the United States until 1983, although many states had independently banned the substance earlier, and prohibition strengthened with the Substance Control Act of 1970. Um, but in 1973, the state of Oregon decriminalized it, and in the 90s was kind of the start of when many states started to make marijuana legal medicinally, so for medical purposes. Traffic accidents themselves are one of the leading causes of death in the United States, sadly. They actually did some driving simulations with um, the effect of THC in the blood, or like smoking weed, how it affects someone's driving. And they did show in these studies that were done um, and most of these studies had to be conducted in Europe because it's still illegal here in the United States, so there's not a lot of federal funding for weed experiments. But um, in Europe and other places, they found that marijuana decreases the distance between cars, which 
increases your risk of an accident and causes weaving between lanes, which is not good. Um, another study uh, used roadside surveys and they found that since the 1970s, I think what I wrote is that non-zero alcohol has been going down. You know, driving with alcohol in your system has been going down since the 70s, but having THC in your system has been going up since 2007. But for this survey, the participants were all voluntary and they had to do pretty intrusive tests, like they had to stop and get swabs and all this stuff. So when you're doing a highly selective sample like that, you're not getting the real picture because a lot of people who are driving drunk or high are probably not going to volunteer for a, you know, a study on this. They might be a little skeptical about where the data is going, if it's going to a government or a police force, or if it can be tied back to them later. Which, if you're in a study, don't worry, that usually doesn't happen. You're probably just lost in the data. And these academics only really care about crunching data. They're not trying to catch you or anything. And don't sue me if that's wrong. <laughs> but uh, do, do whatever you want, whatever. I encourage doing studies because it helps further knowledge, but you're free to do whatever you want, definitely. So they found another study that THC of any kind, so any level of marijuana in your system, results in a 25% increase in crashes of any severity, and that's independent of whether alcohol is present or not. But again, because it was a voluntary survey, it's hard to say if the marijuana caused the increase or if it was some X factor, some other factor that resulted in this. One study found that legalizing medicinal marijuana reduced traffic accidents, Another study found that harsher enforcement reduces drunk driving, like more police on the road reduces drunk driving. So a study also found that having 0.1 blood alcohol content, which is above the legal limit, resulted in 13 times more likely to cause a traffic accident. So having an illegal level of alcohol really does increase the likelihood of traffic accidents, but THC acts differently for different people. From what I gathered that they wrote, you can't just do a like blood alcohol content limit like they do without um, alcohol because marijuana stays in your system much longer even after you're not high anymore. It'll still be in there. It doesn't measure like alcohol. It's kind of a you have it or you don't rather than a specific number. It's a categorical variable rather than a continuous variable. The study that we're reading about now showed that Colorado does have more marijuana-related traffic accidents after legalization. A few complications. They were already increasing before it was legalized. There are fewer alcohol-related accidents after weed was legalized, but total car traffic fatalities did go up a bit, which it had been going down for decades, and then you legalize weed and it goes back up a little bit again. Um, but I think the authors looked at this and found that the deviation, so like the uptick, was not statistically significant. It wasn't much different from the bumps up and down throughout the years. And then if they looked at data from the state of Washington, not Washington, D.C., the state of Washington, it did not fit Colorado's data. What these people did was they took all the other states and put their traffic accidents and marijuana and alcohol variables together to make a synthetic control, meaning like they had a control group that was states that had not legalized recreational marijuana and compared it to these two states that had 
recreational marijuana. And recreational marijuana had been increasing in all states throughout the country, not just these ones that legalized it. So the actual causal effect of legalization is not statistically zero. Fatalities per billion vehicle miles traveled went up 60% after legalization, but 45 to 60% of the increase is caused by legalization. I was a little confused on what these numbers meant. Like, one thing also that I learned through school is that some authors are good at conveying what they're saying and they're good writers and they do good points. Some of them are so dry and boring that you zone out after reading like two sentences. And some of them just do not know how to get a point across clearly. Like this last thing about going up 60% and then something else being caused 45 to 60% was not clear. And I, you know, having three authors, I can understand it kind of conflict in your writing style, but when it's peer-reviewed, just have one person go in and write logically so people can understand what you're saying. I don't think it's a limitation on my part. I've read enough articles where some are clear and some are not that just follow basic, easy-to-understand writing. And if something could be confusing to somebody, then you're doing it wrong. You're a bad writer. <laughs> or at least you've written something not as well as you could have. That's the nicer way to say it. Other studies show that alcohol-related deaths go down by 10% when you legalize weed. Um, but this study didn't find a causal deviation. Um, alcohol deaths went down countrywide rather than just in these states. Alcohol deaths are going down in terms of traffic. Um, in this study, they found little evidence that weed laws impact traffic fatalities. But there were several other co-founding factors. Um, they had to work with data that may have been either incorrectly reported or didn't test everyone on the road. So there might have been problems with the data collection itself. The THC stays in bloodstream days after someone uses marijuana, so it may not affect their driving, but it may still be in their system, which makes it different from alcohol. They said there's no evidence to suggest that there's an increase in traffic fatalities from recreational marijuana, but they cannot rule out any increase. Then they actually did a few more regressions and stuff where they said, you know, the weed was legalized in 2012, but the legal stores selling it did not open until two years later. So was there an increase because of the black market? Was there an increase in traffic fatalities? They did not find that to be statistically significant. And they also removed from their synthetic sample states that bordered Colorado and Washington, you know, the control group that they were comparing it to. They removed the bordering states and they did not find a significant um, difference when they did this. They acknowledged in their study that marijuana creates externalities. And to go over it quickly, I'd love to do a full podcast episode on it, but externality is when something happens that affects other people either positively or negatively. The easy example is smoking cigarettes, where it is an action that you take, it negatively affects your physical health, and there is a negative externality because your secondhand smoke hurts other people, and many would argue that your smoking increases healthcare costs, which are paid through the health insurance system, higher co-pays, higher premiums, causes more harm that is not accounted for when the private market prices cigarettes. Cigarettes are priced by what the consumer is willing to pay, 
not what the consumer is willing to pay, pay plus the cost to society. When you're thinking about marijuana, you got to think not just about the person consuming marijuana, but what are the effects on society of someone consuming marijuana. And when you tax or subsidize, you want to tax negative externalities. So you're raising the price on the bad thing and you want to subsidize, meaning make cheaper good things like education is a very positive externality because higher education means less crime and other things, which means that, you know, <laughs> crime is bad for society overall. Um, so if you lower, if you increase education, then that's good for everyone on a whole. So you want to pay into education because it'll benefit people more. Those kind of taxes and subsidies are Piguvian, which is the name of the guy who came up with it, or at least expanded upon it academically. We want to, in these authors' opinion, marijuana should be taxed Piguvianly. It should be taxed as an externality, and we should be trying to regulate the substance as it affects public health and public safety. However, they voice their opinion that most states and countries tax it re with revenue in mind only. So, you know, instead of traffic cameras that try to catch people speeding to re increase public safety, they might be putting traffic cameras in other areas that just give, you know, cities and localities money. The same with marijuana, where some places might just be trying to get as much as they can from this. Other places might be saying, how can we tax this in a way that lowers traffic fatalities, that reduces secondhand smoke exposure, and other negative or maybe positive externalities? You don't, you never know. Um, I think one positive externality possibly is the diversion of police resources away from prosecuting marijuana crimes towards crimes that other people think might be worse, such as, you know, white collar accounting crimes or violent crimes or arson or something i don't know so that was just a couple of my opinions and i'm glad you listened to this entire mashup of academic articles if you made it to the end bravo um and if you didn't you're not hearing me right now so that's okay anyway i want to thank you all so much for listening to the honest politics podcast and for going through these academic articles with me um, I think the next time I do one of these, I'll do a deep dive into one of them. This was kind of a smorgasbord. Um, I'll go into the authors. I'll go into the journal it was published in. I'll look more carefully at their methodology and stuff like that. For the methodologies on these, I just kind of trusted that since they're peer-reviewed, other PhDs looked at it. Um, not saying I'm a PhD, but um, maybe I'll look at it a little more carefully next time and let you know some of what the statistics that they're doing are. I mean, if you looked at the synthetic control variable that these marijuana article people were doing, it's very complicated, but it, ha it probably has some real value since it was published in the journal called Economic Inquiry, which I don't, I don't know what it is, but it's legit, I guess. So hope you have a great rest of the day. Please email alex at honestpoliticsllc with questions or to be a guest on the podcast to talk about literally whatever you want. Hope you have a great rest of the day. And I'll see you next time as we seek to discover more of the stories behind the statistics.